but uh, let's go into the Word of God today. I'll be reading beginning at 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. But before uh, I go into uh, that, I, I, want, I want to share something as an introduction. Usually, I do an introduction where I share a story that I think is funny, whether people think it's funny or not. And at least I get a laugh out of it before we go into the Word. But today I'm not going to share uh, a funny story. Part of that is because of the subject and what we're looking at and, and some of the things that have been on my heart as we come to this subject. Um, I, I, I have known over the course of my walk with God more than just a few people who in every respect seem to have a vibrant and real and living walk with Christ. Um, in every way, they appeared as much as anyone else I knew and would say that about to have a, a, a walk with God that exemplified a true faith in God and a love and a zeal for God. But over time, I have seen many such people actually walk away from God. Walk away from Jesus, walk away from believing in this Bible and substituting it with all kinds of other things. Has anyone else here experienced that as well? You've seen people who really seemed in every way, many of you have, to, to know God, to love God, and yet at a certain point in time, um, they end up walking away for one reason or another. Now, one of the things I would want to say about that is whether or not, and, and I'm not getting into a deep theological message here today on eternal security. That's not what the message is about today. But one of the things I would say is I, everyone in my life that I've experienced that I am praying for now, that they will come back to God. And, and I pray that, that they will indeed come back and, and that they will be restored in relationship and walk with God. So we can always pray for folk, but the Bible even tells us and warns us about those who will walk away from the faith. And, and, and it's a scary thing. One of the things that I've seen as very central to that uh, as I talk with folk is that uh, for the most part, um, they have... Uh, redefined the center of the universe as self rather than God. Uh, and, and if we'll be honest, for all of us, that is the constant thing that's nipping at our heels. We are, by nature, by our sin nature, we are selfish, and we want the world to conform to us in a way that makes us comfortable, it makes us feel good. So it's not like I can't relate to that at all. I can relate to it too much, and, and I can relate to it in a way it's almost scary how much I can relate to that. Um, and, and, and yet, so you, you see this reality of man-centeredness versus Christ-centeredness, and, and what I've seen is really two categories for people that, that walk away. One is people who will say, I am no longer a believer in Christ or this Bible. They'll just... They'll say it. They're clear about it. They understand the new commitments they've made, and they understand that they are not believers in Christ and would not want to be called Christians. There are others who have walked away, and yet they would still say, well, I'm just 
walking away from the church or I'm just walking away from this or that, but I'm still a Christian. But if you uh, ask them 20 questions, and probably you only need about three questions, uh, you find out very quickly that the realignment they've made in terms of believing in this Bible and believing in the God of the Bible and Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible is not the one that's here. They've substituted uh, the, the God of the Bible for a different God. Um, it's almost like getting an upgrade on your iPhone, right? Uh, so many of you, how many people, I'm not going to ask how many people have an iPhone 6 right now, but, but every once in a while you upgrade your, your phone. I have an Android and I'm still a believer. Uh, I don't know, amen, amen. I'm going to be on church discipline with the other elders for even saying that. Uh, but but, but we, we upgrade these things because we want something better, something that is newer, something that, that serves us more. But many times people do that with God. So God 1.0 wasn't good enough, so I need God 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. And the problem is that the Bible says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He's the same God, and, and yet, be, because he's not fitting in with our plan and our comfort, uh, we, we, we trade him in for a new version. The reality is you'll either worship the true God as he reveals himself, or you will worship a version of God that caters to you. One of the two, the true God or a version of God that caters to you. And we need to be careful as people, some people hate the word religion, but, but Christianity is a religion. It's also a relationship with Christ, but it, it's religion. It's okay to be religious and, and have a relationship with God. But one of the issues is that sometimes, if we're not careful, having religion can work like a, like a flu vaccine in our systems. You know, the flu vaccine actually is some of the flu, right? Uh, they actually put the flu in your body, uh, and they, they put it in, in, in a very small amount, but it alerts your body to the reality that this is a foreign uh, a virus and your body builds up antibodies against it so that when you come in contact with that virus again, your body quickly marshals everything in it to stop the flu. So you got a little dose of it to stop you from really receiving the, the, the real flew in its full force. And many times religion can do that in terms of uh, causing us to be unable to receive the fullness of the reality of what a relationship with the God of this Bible actually looks like. So we got a little religion and we've learned the language of Christianity, Christianese, and we know a few verses and we do a few things. But when God starts to get in the middle and starts to mess with the guts of our life and, the, and goes to the hard places, we're not ready for that. We marshal all our defenses against it. So we need to be careful. As we go to 1 Samuel 4, um, we're going to look at a section of Scripture here. We're going to look at like three chapters today, but I'm just going to pick out a few verses from each. But this is an a, a interesting section of Scripture called the Ark Narrative. So let me read, and then I'll pray, and we'll go on with the rest of the message. 
Second Sam, or 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we come uh, before your word, that we would be met by your word and by the Holy Spirit to speak uh, to your people uh, your truth in a way, O oh God, that works on and transforms our hearts. Be with us in these moments, we pray, for your name's sake and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is an interesting section of Scripture that runs from uh, 1 Samuel 4 to the beginning of 1 Samuel 7. It's called the Ark Narratives. Uh, narratives about the Ark of the Covenant. You remember, if any of you have seen Indiana Jones, that's probably not the best depiction of the Ark of the Covenant, but uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies talks about it. But the Ark of the Covenant was, was actually a small uh, box that uh, the tablets that Moses brought down for the mountain were put in that box. There was also Aaron's uh, rod that budded was put in that box to remember God choosing uh, a people to be priests over the people. And there was also a jar of manna from their time in the wilderness that was put into the box. And as they went through uh, the desert in the wilderness, the ark would go before them and the ark came to signify the very presence of God himself for the people of God. So much so that later on in the Bible, when uh, the, the, the temple is built by Solomon, the ark is placed in the holy of holies, the most holy place. The ark is placed there, and on the top of the ark are two uh, angelic cherubim, and the wings touch, and symbolically the Lord is seated upon his throne in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. And so these uh, few chapters here in 1 Samuel talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Samuel's books, 1 and 2 Samuel, work as a bridge from the time of the judges of Israel after they had conquered the land until the time of the monarchy, which starts with King Saul and then King David. And so in these uh, books of First and Second Samuel, we see two judges mentioned, talked about. First, Eli, who fails to do what God calls him to do as a judge. And then secondly, we see Samuel, who flourishes and fulfills uh, God's plan as a judge. And then we see two kings. He anoints first King Saul, who fails miserably in his kingship, but then he anoints King David, who becomes the prototype king, the one who receives the promises of God for an eternal kingdom 
on which a king will always set, and we know that that king is Jesus. And so this is how this book operates in the scripture. It brings us from the time of the judges to the monarchy, but in the middle of it, we've got this crazy little piece in these few chapters about the ark. They're called the ark narratives. And so we're going to look at some of this today and what it has to say to us. The title of the message today is Proper Preparation for God's Presence. Proper preparation for God's presence. And we're going to see that more than giving us a lot of information about the ark, what these chapters are doing and what these stories are doing is they're teaching us about the character of Yahweh. They're teaching us about the character of Yahweh. So let's begin looking at what we've read already in chapter 4 in those first three verses. What's going on here is God's people are at war with the Philistines. And and in, in, in the battle, the Philistines defeat God's army, God's people, badly. Uh, many, many casualties in that. And, and look with me, if you will, for a moment at verse 3. It says, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a good question. They ask a good question. They ask the right question. We went out to war against the Philistines and we got routed. Something's wrong. So they ask the question, why did this happen? But without waiting one moment for an answer, they go on. And it says, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may be among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They ask the right question, what's going on? How come this happened? But instead of waiting for God's answer, instead of searching their own hearts, instead of looking at themselves and and, uh, what's going on in the city and how are they worshiping God, are they worshiping God rightly, instead of looking in the mirror, they immediately go on and say, I remember the ark. The ark is able to save us from the enemy because it always worked in the past. My, My first point here today about the character of God is this. Yahweh is sovereign. He's sovereign. So they, they, they jump on, let's get the ark and defeat our enemies. Turn with me to verse 10 in that same chapter. It says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. This is a a destructive battle here. It's, It's a huge loss. And how could that happen? We had the ark of the covenant on our side. It always worked for Moses. Why why isn't it working now? God is speaking to his people. He's sovereign. God God is not a good luck charm for you or for me. He's not some words of an incantation that if you say it just the right way, you can make something happen. I don't know about you, but when I was young, uh, having a rabbit's foot was a big deal. 
Anyone know about good luck from a rabbit's foot? Some of you know about good luck from a rabbit's foot. That was an old thing. As I researched it, it actually went back to uh, the 7th century, a Celtic tradition of having a rabbit's foot for good luck. One thing that, that I figured out relatively quickly is that it was not good luck for the rabbit. Because either you've got a dead rabbit or a three-legged rabbit, and neither one of them is much good for the rabbit. Um, so, uh, but, but having a rabbit's foot was always something, I, I remember when I was a kid, it was a big deal because you get good luck. And we look at that and we laugh as believers and how can people have these crazy superstitions. But what I found is that among the people of God, we've got a lot of little superstitious things and a lot of ways that we can negotiate with God in a way that, that uh, makes him or, or that we pretend or act as if he is not sovereign God. Have you ever negotiated with God? Some of you have. I know you have. I know I have at times. Lord, if you just do this, I, I, I tell you what I'm going to do. I am gonna, I'm going to press into you. I'm going to read the whole New Testament 12 times in the next eight hours. If you just do this, Lord, I, I'm going to read the New Testament every day, and I'm going to pray three hours a day. Lord, if you'll just do this, we negotiate with God as if we're saying, and if I do this, you have to do this. You're bound by my word to do this. Isn't that crazy? I know there's a lot of teaching like that out there and we quickly dismiss it, but sometimes if we're not careful, that's what we do as well. We negotiate with God. We make a deal. We cut a deal and we think that we can somehow manipulate him. I get the question from time to time. People ask me about prayer. Uh, and it's weird because they should really be asking my wife about prayer. Uh, but they'll ask me about prayer and they'll ask me specifically about what does it mean exactly to pray in Jesus' name? And now what I'll ask people is, why are you asking me that question? And they'll invariably say something like, well, I read in John 15 that Jesus says, if anyone, if you ask for anything in my name, then I'll give it to you. And, and last week I prayed for five things, and they are not here yet. So, you just have to tell me, what am I doing wrong? Is there a, do I need to say jesus -a? Do I need to say it like that? Or can I say Jesus? What, what am I doing wrong? Because there's something I'm doing wrong. Because the Bible says, if I pray and ask for anything in his name, he'll give it to me. And, and that, that sounds funny, but in so many ways, we try to manipulate God. We try to use God or uh, religious things as some sort of good luck charm, but the reality is that God is sovereign. He's never bound by our understanding or by our expectations. God is the only entirely free creature in the universe, and he's not a creature. He's the creator. He's the only one that's totally and eternally free. You can't bind him up. You can't put him in your box. Um, there was, uh, uh, in, in the book of Acts chapter 19, there's a, a scene with Paul, the great apostle Paul. When we think of Paul, I always think of the heady theologian Paul. He writes all these deep letters to the Corinthians that we study and to Romans and all these other churches. And he is one deep theological beast 
That's the way I tend to think of Paul. Uh, but there's another side of Paul. There were times in his life where God used him remarkably to do miracles through Paul. And in fact, in Acts chapter 19, it says that he did, that extraordinary miracles were being done through Paul. I don't know how that's distinguished from regular miracles. I don't know what regular miracles are, but there were extraordinary miracles being done through Paul. So much so, it says, that if people had a handkerchief or an apron that touched his skin and then they brought it back to someone, the person would be healed or demons would be cast out. Now, this happened in the scripture. In Acts chapter 19, it reveals that. Now, I know I've been on Christian television and seeing guys asking for me to send them money so that they would send me one of those handkerchiefs, right? That they prayed over and it would heal me. Don't send your money there. But God did that through the Apostle Paul and, and people heard about it and they're like, wow, this God, this Jesus that Paul serves is powerful. And so there were seven sons of a high priest named Sceva and, and they heard about this and they said, we want that power too. So they began to proclaim uh, the Jesus that, that Paul speaks of and, were, and went to cast out demons by Jesus whom Paul speaks about. What happened to them? Most of you know, many of you know, they got a beat down in Jesus' name by the demons, right? They, they got, they got mollywhopped. They got <laughs> knocked over. They, they got... They got destroyed, amen? And the Bible says that they left, they ran, they were naked, their clothes were gone, they just got beat up bad. And because they got the formula, Jesus that Paul speaks of, that was the formula. If we're not careful, we start looking for formulas and start missing the sovereign God of the universe. Be aware, uh, first of all, that it is the sovereign God of the universe that we're dealing with. Secondly, I want to go to chapter 6 and verse 13 and 14. Not only is God sovereign, but he's also supreme. So what had happened, we saw that they lost the ark in chapter 4, and the Philistines got the ark. But now, in chapter 6, the ark, after seven months of being with the Philistines and causing them all kinds of problems... They had plagues among themselves having the ark there. They finally said, we got to get rid of this thing. This thing is bad news. Let's send it back to Israel. Israel gets it back. Verse 13 of chapter 6. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced in it. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. and They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. While the, uh, while the ark was among the Philistines, it, it caused them all these plagues and all this trouble. So they put it on a cart with two cows and said, if it goes to Israel, then we know that these plagues come from, came from God. And they came directly to Israel. They came right to the people and the people rejoice because now we have the ark back and they make an offering using the wood of that cart and using the, the cows that pulled the cart. They make an offering to God and their celebration among 
God's people for a little while. But then look at verse 19. It says, And he, meaning the Lord, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. When he says he struck them, it means he killed them. That They died right there after the ark came back in the presence of God. What in the world is going on? Why would he do that? Look at Numbers chapter 4, verses 5 and 20. I think they have that for the board as well. So Numbers chapter 4, verses 5 and 20. Uh, in Numbers, uh, Moses is laying out, uh, the Lord is laying out through Moses, a description of how God's people are to handle all of the holy things that are used in his worship. It says in verse 5, when the camp is to set out, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. But they, in verse 20 says, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. They shall not look on these things, even for a moment, lest they die. God had clearly laid out in his law the way that these things were supposed to be handled. And yet, what we see here in 1 Samuel 6 is that the men, it says, they looked upon the ark of the Lord. The word, the way it's used there, actually means to intently gaze upon it. So they opened up the ark to look in. I want to see those tablets. I want to check out the manna. What does it look like? Does it look like the communion wafers at Epiphany? I don't know. What does it look like? I want to see Aaron's rod. Is it still budding after all these years? And so they open up the ark and they gaze upon it intently. And God says, you know better. And he takes them out. Not only is God sovereign, but he is supreme. He is to be obeyed. God is to be obeyed. Sometimes we don't, as adults, like that word obeyed very much. Now, you have to obey all kinds of things every day, don't you? Um, we have to obey, but sometimes just that word feels like, ah, obey. Don't tell me to obey. Uh, listen, it doesn't work well in marriages. If I tell my wife, baby, you need to obey me. It was in the vows. Um, I hope I have my hockey mask on when I say that to her. No, she would, she would never touch me like that. But, 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 but the reality is we don't like that word, obey, obey me. But God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be messed with. God is to be obeyed. He is supreme. And he doesn't take excuses. We've got, we come many times with excuses. I, I, I shared this story in the last service a few weeks ago. I got my car, not, not just a ticket, but I got it towed away. Uh, I was over by Cecil B. Moore Avenue and Broad Street behind the Qdoba. There's a parking lot back there. I've been there before. Um, and I, was, I had my mind on 10,000 things. And I went by there. I said, oh, my gosh, all these open parking spaces in the middle of North Philadelphia. 
and there's no meters or anything. I can just park there. And I parked, and I went, and I did my business, and I came back, and my car was not there anymore. And all the signs I didn't see, I saw now. <laughs> and there were not a few of them. But that did not lighten my anger for the moment. And I know it's theologically incorrect, but it felt as if I had totally lost my Holy Ghost for a little while there. And I saw the sign that said, cars will be towed away. And it said the cost is $175 for the towing and $25 for the, for the, the, the storing of the car. Now, they just towed it 10 minutes ago. You don't need to store nothing. You just need to give me back my car. And that's what I told the woman. She said, there are signs everywhere. I said, I'm looking right here, and I don't see a sign. They're not everywhere. I was mad. I was livid. I was messed up. But I realized I can do that all day long. I'm not getting my car <laughs> until I give them $205. And the, and the real, the killer of it was, it's my old teenage car that is not hardly worth $205. So it was like... What do I do? I got the money. I, 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 called, I called Pastor Kurt. He came down to get me because it's all the way down in southwest Philly where they tow it to. Tow it to South Mississippi. Make it inconvenient. And I get in his car. I'm still mad, but, but I got a little Holy Ghost back by that time. And I'm, I'm talking to Pastor Kurt. And then after about five minutes, I realize his kids are in the car. I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for keeping me right now, because I could have destroyed their most holy faith. I mean, I could have messed up these kids bad, but by God's grace, I was, I was cool enough by that time. Here's the thing, though. I got my car towed even though I never saw the sign. I should have seen the sign. I knew about the place. My daughter had that same car towed from there years ago. So why didn't I know there's something wrong with me that I didn't know? See, a lot of us will plead ignorance with God over different things. Well, I didn't know. Well, you should have known. Many times we, we need to press into God. And the reality is we do know. I knew there was something about that place. It was too good to be true. But I just wanted to believe it was true. But I could do that in Jesus' name all I wanted. I got my car towed, y'all. God is supreme. Now, here's, the, here's the, the issue. Sometimes now when we talk about obedience, obeying God, people immediately take that as legalism. Obedience is not legalism. It's part of godliness. Obedience is evidence of your conversion. It is evidence of the fact that God has taken out my heart of stone and given me a new heart. Are we going to fail and mess up sometimes? Oh, you better believe that we are. But the desire to obey God is deeply in the heart and in the bones and in the blood of a believer in Jesus Christ. And we realize that God is supreme, not my comfort, not, not, not what makes me feel good. It's God who is supreme. And so I bow before God and that reality that I live to serve Him. He doesn't live to serve me. As believers, we, we come down on that and we believe that. Look at verse 20 of this same uh, chapter, verse 20 of chapter 6. 
It says, Now the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Verse 21. They sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now, what they didn't say is 70 of our best men just died because of it, right? They just said, hey, Kiriath-Jerim, guess what? We've got the ark back from the Philistines. Isn't that great? You can have it now. We want you to have it. What's going on? It's interesting, the language here. If you look in verse 20, when they say, who's able to stand before the Lord? And they say, this holy God. That's very impersonal, isn't it? These are the people of God. These are uh, the, the nation of Israel, those who are set apart as God's own people. And yet they say, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Look at chapter 5, and verse, starting at verse 6. And this is when the, the ark is among the Philistines in Ashdod, one of the cities of the Philistines. It says, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. There was a plague among the Philistines wherever the ark went, and they got tumors, and many died. There was this terrible plague that was going on. Verse 7 says, And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of, God, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. It's interesting that the, the reaction of God's people here in verse 6 is very much like the, uh, the reaction of the pagan non-believers in chapter 5. Same reaction. God's too close for comfort. God is too close to us. This is too much. So not only do we see here in these verses that God is sovereign, uh, not a good luck charm. God is supreme uh, to be obeyed. He's also set apart. That is, He is holy. The word kadosh or holy, as it's translated here, means to be set apart. Means to be wholly different from anything or anyone else. It, the, the word has the idea uh, 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 of being set apart from all weakness, from all frailty, from all moral impurity. It is perfection. said, how can we exist here with this holy God? Too holy, too much for us. He'd be better off 10 miles away in another city. We can live with God 10 miles away. I just don't want him in my face. God is set apart as holy. And as believers in Jesus Christ, he calls us to be set apart as holy for his purpose. This sounds like an old time message, but it's just a gospel Bible message is all it really is. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, the scripture says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. And then he goes on in verse 11 and says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, all, everything he set up to there is what God has done for you. He's made you his precious people. He's made you a holy nation. You hadn't received mercy. Now you've, got, now you've received mercy. But because of that, now I'm asking you to do something, he says, as sojourners abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain from those things. Honor God. You are a set-apart people, set apart by a set-apart and holy God to proclaim His excellencies in this world and to show with your lips and your life what it means to be set apart for God. You are a billboard for the gospel by your life and by your words. You're set apart for God. Wholly different. So these narratives tell us about the character of God. God supreme. God sovereign. God set apart. And if that's true, then how do we properly prepare for the presence of this God? I'm so glad you asked that question. Turn with me to Psalm 24, and we'll end our time here in Psalm 24. Some people believe that Psalm 24 was written for the occasion of bringing the ark into the city of Jerusalem many years after what we've read here in 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David actually gets the ark and brings it into Jerusalem. And many people believe that this psalm is, is written as a liturgical way of celebrating the bringing of the ark into the city of God, Jerusalem. That may or may not be the case. I'm not sure about that. What I am sure about is that Psalm 24 instructs us of how to rightly prepare ourselves to be in His presence. So let, let's look at a couple of things. So we'll just read through these verses in Psalm 24. How do we prepare to be in His presence? Starts out verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. First of all, we prepare for his presence by acknowledging that Yahweh is the center of everything. Jesus is the center of everything. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell in it. He is the one who established it, who founded it, who made it, who created everything that is, and we belong totally and completely to Him. We, we've got to get that right, folks. Here's the question. Is Jesus really, we know He's the center of the universe, is He the center of the way you live your life? Not, not, not theoretically, but, but really. Is He the center of the way you live your life? See, if, if, if he's the center of everything, if he is the substance of all things, then my money belongs to God. My time belongs to God. My free time belongs to God. That doesn't mean I can't do things I enjoy, but it means that I do things I enjoy understanding that it belongs to God. 
My children belong to God. I don't own them. My house, where I live, it belongs to God. Even my car that costs $205 to get out of the tow place belongs to God. Uh, Sometimes I want to say, and you can have it. (laughs) I want a new one. (laughs) But, but, But everything belongs to God. Do we live like that? Do you live like that? Acknowledging Yahweh as the center of everything. Number one, now let's look starting at verse three. He asked this incredible question, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He's going to give an answer here. Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. How do you prepare for the presence of God? Second thing is to put on holiness. Put on his holiness. And we're going to see uh, something in, the, in that verse and then in the next verse that's a little bit different. But you see the reality of an effort to purify your heart. Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 8, blessed are those who are pure in heart. Why? He says, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Asaph says in Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We we can't hide behind a, a, a lazy Christianity that says, Jesus did it all, I don't need to do anything. No, Jesus did it all, and therefore I live for Him. And I I, I love Him. And though I am aware of the impurities of my heart, though I'm aware that I fail and I fall, at the same time, I'm aware that God is the one who is able to make all things right. So he says... uh, your, your daily, here's, here's the question. If, if it's true that you're putting on uh, His holiness by your actions and by your faith, what are you clothing yourself with on a daily basis? Are you clothing yourself with His righteousness? Yeah. What does that mean? It means a life where you are actively and purposely desiring to obey God. That's what it means. You actively desire to obey God. It also means a life of confession because you don't make it all the time. It means a life of repentance. And we'll also see in the next verse here, this is all covered under the beauty of the gospel reality that Christ is the one who has lived perfectly in a way that you never will, and He gives you His righteousness. Look at verse 5. He says, He will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. In verse 4, it's talking about something that we are and do. You don't lift up your uh, hand, you don't lift up your soul to what is false, you don't swear deceitfully. But in verse 5, he talks about what you receive from God. He says, The one who's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place is the one who receives blessing from the Lord. You'll receive his blessing. The the priestly blessing of of the book of Numbers towards Aaron 
uh, is the blessing that we often receive as well as a benediction. But he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and comfort you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He says, he says you will receive the blessing of the Lord. This is the coming of a Savior who will care for you and will wipe away all your sins. Not only the blessing, but he says, not only the blessing of the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. You will receive righteousness from God. The, the word there, siddikah, is the Hebrew, could also be called justification. In, in the NIV, it's translated vindication. What does it mean? It means that uh, what we don't make, where we lack in purity of heart, where we lack in righteousness, He gives it to us. It is the free gift of God by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's saying in these verses, you prepare yourself to be in the presence of God by receiving His free gift in Jesus Christ. You receive that gift, not, not just in, I can say in my own life, in 1980, I received Jesus Christ into my life, but daily I am receiving Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy and his love and going over the truth of his gospel in my mind over and over again. I'm receiving the reality of what the Lord gives us. And then lastly, verses 7 through 10. I'll just read those verses for a moment. I love these verses, and some believe that these are, are written as a part of a liturgy where you have two groups standing facing one another and crying out these different things in these verses. So one says, lift up your heads, O gates, and the other says, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. One says, who is the king of glory? The other says, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. One group says, lift up your heads, O gates. And the other says, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. One says, who is the king of glory? The other says, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You see this? incredible liturgical profession of faith and the joy of God's people at receiving the King of glory into their presence. The last thing here, preparing for His presence, is joyfully declaring His righteous reign. You see, as believers, we don't need to be in that place of, of the people in 1 Samuel 6, when God gets too close, they say he needs to go somewhere else. It's too much. No, but as God's people, we receive him. We are happy to receive him. We rejoice in receiving him. We can't hold it in anymore. He's been so good to me. Some of you have a testimony that knows just how good God is and how good he's been to you. And it's not because you've been good your whole life. It's not because you've been good ever since you got saved. Some of you have messed up worse since you've been saved than before you were saved. Some of you know that grace and that glory of the King of glory who has come in. 
And, and, so, and so we prepare ourselves by joyfully declaring his righteous reign. You know, it's interesting, theologians call this section the, the welcoming of the warrior God, the ancient warrior. God is, is the, 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 the divine warrior here. He is the king of glory. He is mighty in battle. He is strong. He is the Lord of hosts. This is God. But the wonder of it is, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that when you know God this way, you see this mighty warrior and you know that he is warring for you and not against you. He's mighty in battle and he's able to take down every enemy that his name might be glorified in your life. Prepare yourself today to receive and to be in the presence of God. Clothe yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in his finished work and know that God is for you. And as Paul said, if God is for you, who can be against you? Receive his blessing today. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful and grateful for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we don't have to be afraid of your awesome presence There are so many things in this world that we say are awesome that really aren't awesome at all. But you are awesome. And your presence is a wonder that you could be close to us and we we are not smitten. We don't die. We're We're not blown away. But Lord, we're restored in your presence. We're strengthened in your presence. We're calmed in your presence. We receive peace in your presence. God, we're thankful and grateful for what you've done for us in Christ. And I pray that you would bid us as your people, everyone here that knows you, that you would bid us to come, to come to you often, over and over again, that we might know the glory of being in the presence of God. But Lord, help us to come right. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Help us to confess what we need to confess. Help us to repent where we need to repent. Lord, that won't stop until we leave to be with you or you come to be with us. We'll always need to do those things. But we do those with joy because we know that you have covered everything and you've given us your blessing and your righteousness in the finished work of Jesus. So Lord, we're thankful today. Lord, we pray for anyone in this place that doesn't know you today. Lord, we pray they're in a precarious situation today. There may be some who are here who have walked away, but they're here today. I thank you for that, Lord God. We pray that you would move in their hearts. There may be some who were considering, uh, is this Jesus thing really real? Do I really need to serve him? I pray you convict their hearts and draw them to yourself. And there may be some who are just here and don't have a clue why they're here. I pray, oh God, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, don't let them leave this place without having a conversation about their own soul and knowing about this God who is able to heal, who is able to forgive, and who is able to transform. Have your way and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.